Our sermon passage is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your grace to us. Thankful for Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we have through him whose blood was shed so that we might be made whole. The love that you have set on us is astounding. Measure our worth by the love that you have shown. So as your people, those who have been made by you, those who have been remade in Christ, it's the ones who call him king and look to him for guidance and rule, we submit ourselves to you. We come to your word now, recognizing that in it you have revealed yourself to us. You're good and upright, and we know this because you've instructed sinners in the way. You instruct us by your word. So as we open it, we open our hearts. We want to be encouraged in thinking on Christ. We want for your spirit to bring conviction and strength to us to walk in holiness. So we ask that by your word you would do these and many other good things in us and through us for your own glory. We pray for all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, again, my name is Nick Lingle, and uh, my wife Stacy and I are happy to be with you along with our girls, Olivia and Meredith. Uh, we have been at Westwood down on the west side of Nashville for the past couple years. And uh, we're grateful to be with you all again this morning. Your vision as a church uh, to see outside of yourselves, to uh, take into your hearts not only what's happening here by God's grace at Redeemer, but also what's going on uh, at other churches and in other places. Uh, the Lord is honored by that kind of large-hearted kingdom-mindedness. And uh, I hope you're encouraged. I know your support, as I've told you before, was pivotal, has been pivotal for Westwood, uh, this church that had had a, a near-death experience, uh, but by God's grace is uh, growing and moving toward a place of health and strength. So thank you for your investment in it. Uh, God loves his church and loves when his people invest in it, and, uh, and we're very grateful for that. I just want to begin by doing a, asking you to do a quick self-assessment. How are you feeling about the state of the world? 
Uh, now, I'm sorry, I don't have an app for you to uh, get, you know, respond to a QR code or something with your results so that we can show the live results on the screen. I don't even have a, a yellow card uh, for you to fill in all the bubbles so we could get the results. But um, if we were taking a survey, how do you feel about the state of our nation and the world? Are you happy and generally encouraged about the state of our nation and the world? Or are you generally discouraged about the state of our nation and the world? Well, I'm not going to quote a bunch of statistics at you, but you wouldn't be surprised to know that the surveys indicate a growing pessimism about the well-being of our nation, especially viewed from a Christian perspective. And for legitimate reasons, we may feel very pessimistic about the state of the world. But we should feel a great gospel optimism about the progress of the church in the world. The church also has its faults despite our sins, despite opposition, though we should be hopeful with a humble confidence that the church will continue to progress in the world. And the basis of that gospel optimism is found in the one verse that we'll focus our attention on uh, this morning, Matthew 16, verse 18. Now, you may remember that Jamie preached from uh, this passage, the, the whole passage that was read back at the end of March, uh, but this morning we'll be focusing just on verse 18 and more specifically just on the sort of second half of verse 18. This is God's word. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll focus our attention especially on the promise of Christ. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We learn three things from this promise. First, that Christ will have a church in this world. There will always be the preaching of the gospel. This is what we are to do. When Christ says, I will build my church, well, he does that, but he does that through us. And then secondly, we learn that the world and even the powers of hell itself will attack and oppose Christ's church in the world. The church has a mortal enemy. That is an enemy that wants it dead. And then thirdly, despite opposition, the church will prevail. So we're given the outcome here as well. And that outcome is the ultimate victory of Christ's church. Really the ultimate victory of Christ for his church. So those three things, the progress of the church, the enemy of the church, and the victory of the church. So first of all, the progress of the church you can mark it down as a promise from Jesus. He says, I will build my church, and his building project will not fail. You yourselves as a church have experienced this. You're sort of a living illustration of this promise. A number of years ago, God said it in Jamie's heart uh, with others to plant a church, and here we are 12 years later or so, a living memorial that Jesus keeps his promise. But what Jesus says here isn't limited to any one particular local church, but to the situation of the universal church in the world. You may be aware that doctrinally we distinguish between the universal church and the local church. The universal church being the collection of all Christ's people of all time. 
that church that won't gather until we have one final worship service uh, with an eternal duration in heaven. That is the universal church. And then on the other hand, we have the local church, which is all of those individual congregations that meet together, such as this one, meeting together under the headship of Christ. Uh, Almost every use of the word church in the New Testament refers to identifiable local congregations. Here is one of only two places in the New Testament where the word church is used in this more expansive or universal sense, the other being in Ephesians 3, verse 10. But Jesus promises here that he will build his church, the universal collection of worshipers. What exactly is contained in this promise to build? Well, in the promise to build, Jesus guarantees both the expansion and the maturity of his church. So the expansion of the church becomes a major theme throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus tells his followers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, our city, and in Judea and Samaria, our surrounding regions, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, These Uh, expansion in concentric circles. And then Paul says that his strategy uh, for declaring the gospel uh, includes this idea of expansion. And he makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, it's all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He wants the preaching of the gospel to result in more and more people giving thanks to God, which brings him glory. And then again in Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He's concerned to extend the reach of the gospel into more places, into into new places. This is what Christ promises. So we should anticipate that from the time of Christ, the time of this promise forward, the church will continue on the whole to expand in the world into more places, into more people groups. It may be constricted in one country for a time, But then again, at the same time, it may be flourishing in another place, which reminds us that we are to be uh, local in our love and rooted in our uh, commitment to our local congregation. But at the same time, we are to be global in our awareness of and our concern for the expansion of the gospel. We should be concerned to know that this promise is being fulfilled Our field of vision has to take in more than just what's right in front of us, but it must also include distant work, not just what's right here at home. But not only does Jesus build his church through expansion, but also through maturity. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says that the body of which Christ is the head, the body builds itself up in love. So so we're growing upward. That's maturity, growing upward in love. And then again, in Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews says to the church, uh, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. And then he goes on in this rebuke in verse 6 to say, so let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
uh, that we should be growing up in maturity, being built up in uh, mature doctrine, doctrinal discernment, to, to know the Bible, to know more of the Bible, and to have a, a corresponding growth and love for the God who reveals himself there. If that is happening in you individually, if that's happening in you collectively as a church, well, then that also is Christ fulfilling his promise to build his church. You are being built up by the Spirit, prepared for suffering, moving forward in holiness, growing in discernment and knowledge. So that's what the promise to build means, expansion and maturity. And now how does Christ do this? What's, what is the method by which Jesus builds his church? And the way Christ accomplishes both aspects of growth, both expansion and maturity, is through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel leads to growing faith and repentance. And then those who express faith and repentance, that is, those who are converted, are brought into or gathered into local congregations, into churches. So again, in Acts 1, when Jesus is talking about that expansion from Jerusalem outward, he says, you will be my witnesses. So if you put Matthew 16 and Acts 1 together, you have, I will build my church. You will be my witnesses. And then in Ephesians 4, when Paul was talking about the body growing up in mature love, he says, the body builds itself up in love. So we edify one another. We strengthen one another in growth in Christ's likeness. That's how the church is built up in maturity. It builds itself up. So again, you put uh, Matthew 16 and Ephesians 4 together, and you have, I will build my church. The church builds itself up in love. So while Christ promises to build his church in Matthew 16, we see plainly that the means or method by which he builds is us. We have this privilege of participating in Christ's construction project, his people spreading his gospel. And this is the essence of the missionary task, that we as the church enter into new places and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples, and then gather those disciples into uh, existing local churches or new local churches, and then establish, if they don't already have it, godly qualified leaders in that church, the exact process that Philip was referring to in that video. So Christ's goal is to build his church. So any rightly calibrated mission, missions effort uh, makes church formation its goal as well. So if I said that clearly, you'll note that the, the local church is the means for building the universal church. And the building of healthy local churches, therefore, is the goal of missions. So this is the cycle. Local churches establish and strengthen more healthy local churches. And that is the means by which Christ builds the universal church. And that's all that missions is. Now, there are many who think that the church is what's wrong with Christianity. 
that the church gets in the way of and fumbles up dynamic outreach, that the church is ingrown and political. And yes, local churches have their problems. Probably you have experienced some of those problems at some point. We're saints, but we are still sinners. And elders and pastors are sinners just like everyone else. But hopefully, we are growing despite our sin, in maturity and in holiness, not just in numerical stats, expansion, but also in maturity and love. And still, despite our faults, this is the method that Christ has established for doing his work, and we can't improve on his method. Just a couple encouraging examples of this in addition to the video we watched. Uh, Now, you may have heard that as of May 1st, as of the beginning of this month, our cooperative churches in the SBC have planted 10,000 churches in North America since 2010. That's an incredible number. Now, of course, not all of them have survived, and there have been many other churches that have died in that same period, and the critics may make other diminishing observations, but still... That number is evidence that God's people are making serious and prayerful efforts for the progress of the church here on our continent. Then also, uh, I was with a brother last week who is a pastor in northern India. Uh, Now, if you don't know much about northern India, according to Joshua Project, which is a a website that tracks uh, unreached people groups, there are over 7,000 unreached people groups remaining in the world. And over 3,500 of those unreached people groups are in India. So over half the unreached are concentrated in India. And northern India in particular is extremely populous and particularly hard to reach culturally and because of hostility. So I was with this uh, Indian brother last week uh, whose church there in northern India has started a seminary and a pastoral internship And they are raising up, trying to find, identify possible leaders and raise them up and send them into major northern cities to evangelize and then to gather those new believers into local churches. So despite the government's best efforts to find them, to silence them, to imprison them, and many of them have been imprisoned, still there is this amazing work going on over there. And more stories like this could be told from all over the world. So while the influence of Christianity may seem to be receding in America, it's progressing in other places all around the world. Though it's not so much a recession as it is a shift in the global progress of the gospel. Uh, The missiologist Andrew Walls said the, the, the progress of the church in the world is like the tide coming in. Uh, the waves move forward and at times draw back and sometimes farther up the beach in one place than another. But all the while, the tide is coming in and Christ has promised, I will build my church. So we aren't naive to the trouble that we will face, but we have a certain optimism that the world will never be without the gospel and its preaching in the church. Though the church will make progress, it will not be unopposed progress. And so secondly, we see the enemy of the church. 
the enemy of the church. And here we focus our attention on Christ's reference to the gates of hell. What are the gates of hell? Where does that language come from? Well, the phrase gates of hell is used a number of times in the Old Testament to refer generally to death, as as in passing through the gates of darkness or the gates of Sheol. Uh, The idea then here would be that death uh, will not prevail against the church. Uh, The church cannot die. The church will continue uh, forever because we follow a resurrected Christ. But also... I believe Jesus is using the phrase gates of hell here, uh, not only to refer to death, but also to the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what Hebrews 2 says, that the devil is the one who has the power of death. He is the enemy of each Christian and of Christ's church. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if the local church is the means by which Christ builds the universal church, then it stands to reason that the enemy of Christ makes uh, the church the target of his opposition. The greatest enemy of the church is not ISIS or Planned Parenthood or Hollywood or secular government. It's not atheist college professors or greedy corporations or corrupt politicians. The greatest external enemy of the church is Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, I say external because, of course, we have an internal enemy as well, which is our own indwelling sin nature. We are guilty often of dividing the church from within. We may seek our own best interests rather than the best interests of others. Or we may give up on the faith like Demas, who in love with the present world deserted the cause of Christ. The enemy within is real. But here Christ speaks not of the enemy within, but of the enemy without. The external enemy of the church. And that enemy opposes and attacks. The forces of darkness seek to prevail against the church. The image of the gates here is not of us storming the gates of hell uh, through evangelism, but, but rather of hell's powers opposing us as we seek to proclaim Christ in all the world. Now, why do they oppose Well, the general reason that the gates of hell war with such weight in this world is that their prince and king believes that he has a certain dominion in the world. He's claimed it. He believes it's his and always will be his territory. Now, he's wrong, of course, but he fights as though defending his own kingdom. He believes that when Adam and Eve yielded to his temptation. That is, it was as if that was his coronation ceremony, his, his day when he became king, even Adam crowning Satan king of the earth and bowing down to him. And of course, he does have power in the world. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Even Jesus does call Satan the ruler of the world. And John says in 1 John 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so since the beginning... Uh, He has animated the enemies of God to oppose the people of God. 
So it's always been the situation of God's people in the world from the first martyr, righteous Abel, who was killed for living a life pleasing to God. From the very beginning, God's people have been opposed. The church could say along with David in Psalm 129, from my youth up, they have afflicted me. The church began in blood, has grown up in blood, and shall end in blood, even as it was redeemed by blood. This is the reality that God's people face. There are at least four ways the devil opposes the church. First, false doctrine. He suggests and promotes false doctrine in the church. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul calls it the teaching of demons. It distracts us away from healthy doctrine. So that there's either false teaching, denying the gospel in some way, or even just inadequate teaching, where people are fed sort of feel-good or how-to talks and never hear the truth that we are born in sin, that Christ offers forgiveness, and that we may gain that forgiveness through repentance and faith in him of false doctrine. And then secondly, internal division. Satan comes in and stirs up internal division so that then the church, rather than feeling motivated and energized to work for God and his purposes, uh, we feel sour and disgruntled and focused on uh, petty things rather than global advance of the gospel. And then thirdly, uh, social coercion. So in Revelation 13, we're told that these are, there are these two beasts um, that are animated by the great dragon of chapter 12, Satan himself, energizing or fueling the work of these two beasts. And what do these two beasts do? Well, they exert huge pressure in, in terms of governmental systems and military power. They exert massive pressure on the people of God to conform to the world system. This is the work of Satan also. And then fourthly, physical harm. Again, those beasts in Revelation 13 have the power of the sword, as Paul calls it in Romans 13. And ungodly rulers often use or abuse that power by oppressing God's people, imprisoning them, and even taking their lives. And this also is fueled by Satan's suggestions. This morning, there are Christians and missionaries all over the world whose bodily safety is threatened on account of Christ. Their work is carried on in secret to avoid the detection of the enemy. So if the progress of the church is what Christ promises, then this is exactly what Satan aims to stop. He's determined to thwart the progress of the church. So all four of these things become uh, apparent uh, roadblocks or diversions to Christ's promise to build. However, having said all of this about Satan and his work, we must remember that Satan's dominion is limited. He has power, but not ultimate power. He has some kind of dominion, but not ultimate dominion. This is not his world. It's not his territory. This is my father's world. And when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples, he said, all authority has been given to me. So we go bearing the authority of Christ as we labor to accomplish his work. And remember, 
This is the same Jesus who calmed the storm, demonstrating sort of the quality of that authority, demonstrating that it's his world and it submits to him. And then he even asked the disciples, why were you afraid? It's the same Christ who casts out demons, indicating to us that he and his followers clearly have authority and power over Satan, not the other way around. So over and over again, Jesus says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. So let this knowledge of our enemy sober us to the difficulty of the task and sensitize us to the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world and drive us to prayer. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So do not be afraid. Though the church has its enemy, the victory is certain. So thirdly, the victory of the church. The victory of the church. These gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This also is part of Christ's promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our enemy is real, but our victory is certain. Notice how Jesus refers to it even. Uh, My church. I will build my church. We are his church. He is our head. We are his body. We belong to him. This is not your church to have it your way. I'm sure, sure you love many things about this church. This is Christ's church. He left heaven for us. He bled for us. He rose again for us. He's coming back for us. He loves his church. And because Christ loves his church, he will not abandon it. He won't fail in his care for us. He will hold us fast. He will build his church and it will not be defeated. In the jungles of Indonesia and the frigid mountains of Uzbekistan, in the megacities of repressive China and hostile India, and amid the secular hostility of America, in all these places, the church is meeting this morning and celebrating the resurrection along with us. It can't be stopped. Satan and his hosts may threaten and do their worst, blinding eyes, causing division. Governments may try to suppress religion. And yet, as Leslie Newbegin observed, the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. This guaranteed outcome, the promise of victory, is not a promise that any one particular church will never cease to exist. Again, Jesus refers here to the collection of all believers of all time, the universal church. Many local churches have come to an end, and many will come to an end. This church may cease to exist at some point. Our hope is not that any particular church will never cease. And we don't want to be so limited in our thinking, thinking about only one church, that we, we fail to see the work that God is doing in many churches and in many countries. And the mission of God will proceed in the world with or without this church. But Redeemer, by God's grace, wants to be part of that mission that God is doing. 
what God is doing in advancing his kingdom. And we have the privilege to participate. This is exactly what Christ calls us to do, uh, to build. Again, while he says, I will build, it turns out that this victory is accomplished through him uh, in strengthening and empowering his church to go and do the work. Go make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let me suggest just two ways that you can do this. First, pray and work for the health of this local church. Pray and work for the health of this local church. So if the local church is the means Christ uses to build the universal church, then we should be careful to protect the health and strength of each local church. So be careful to protect this, your church, from division and complaint and sins that would diminish or distract from your effectiveness as a church in helping this global cause. And then also uh, positively do some work for the well-being of this church. Uh, any local body, uh, it's, it's culture. Your, your DNA as a church is not merely a top-down vision from the elders, uh, but also an organic result of what each of you, each member of the church contributes so you are contributing, whether you realize it or not, to the culture of what Redeemer is. How are you contributing? When you give to the Redeemer on Mission Fund, for example, that's, that's not merely a financial gift in that moment, but it's also an investment in the giving culture of this church with an eye toward the global work that God has put in your hearts to do. So... Pray for and work for the health of this local church. And then secondly, pray and work for the health of other local churches around the world. Pray and work for the health of other local churches around the world. So work together as a church, as a healthy church that is globally minded to help other local churches. Uh, be a church that recognizes that we here are not uh, singularly the kingdom of God, but rather we are one local manifestation of the kingdom of God, which is composed of hundreds of thousands of other churches and millions of believers all around the world, and we want their good as well. So work to know the missions partners of your church and pray for them regularly. I apologize if that sounds self-interested. Uh, be a godly agitator for global concern within this congregation. When LJ announces that the goal for Redeemer on mission is $20,000, where's the guy who says, why not $30,000? Not encouraging you to criticize uh, your leaders, uh, and I don't personally receive any of those funds. However, uh, we should be working together to envision uh, new ideas, new ways that we as a congregation, you as a congregation, can work to start and strengthen other local churches around the world. We each chip in cheerfully to this effort with joy, knowing that the outcome is certain. The victory here is not so much the church's victory against its enemies, but rather Christ's victory on behalf of the church. So yes, he uses us, but the victory is his. 
David and Goliath is the illustration of this. Uh, The victory was won by David, but the whole Israelite army was delivered, and we all have gained deliverance through the victory of Christ that he won for us. It's a direct consequence of his death and resurrection on our behalf. So his future victory will only finally and fully establish what that past victory has already guaranteed. So for us, the experience is like living between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was that day of invasion, Normandy, where the end of World War II was effectively sealed and guaranteed. But it wasn't until almost a year later that that victory was finally established D-Day was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the decisive defeat of the enemy. V-Day is the second coming of Christ, when the enemy will finally and fully surrender and be banished forever from God's eternal world. The hope of final victory is so much more vivid because of the unshakably firm conviction that the battle that decides that victory has already taken place. So we are fueled by the confidence that the resurrection of Christ has gained for us. We may lament evil and pray the Lord to mercifully end it, but we dare not think that the progress of evil halts the progress of the kingdom. So please be encouraged. And in that zeal, go out and do great works. Fearlessly speak of Christ. Fearlessly love your neighbor. Fearlessly pursue purity and maintain a good conscience in all that you do to the glory of Christ and on the basis of his promise. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this word that you've given us, for the instruction we gain from it, for the encouragement that we have fueling us toward greater obedience. Even as we look for you to accomplish this victory, Give us grace to participate as your people in the fulfillment of this promise.